0: If you've got your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew 21. Kiddos can run to Children's Church if they want to. There goes a couple now. Matthew chapter 21, just continuing our wonderful study in the epic gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we ask for you to show us... What you have for us through the actions and the words of Jesus, may we understand and see the relevance for the day that we live in, because all these things are written for our instruction, and we ask for your grace to understand, in Christ's name, amen. So, we're looking at Matthew 21, it's early in the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. So far, outwardly, if you were there, you would think things look pretty good. Jesus is celebrated by people. He's proclaimed the son of David, the Messiah. His every word is being eagerly attended by large crowds in the temple. He's the master of the temple, controlling its activities, putting an end to all the buying and selling on temple grounds. Of course, we know all of this is very short-lived. But Jesus had already told the disciples and if you were reading Matthew's gospel you've already encountered several times up to this point what would happen to him in Jerusalem and he said there would be a trial and scourging, death by crucifixion and a resurrection. And his popularity was not deep, it was superficial. So Jesus had already told the disciples about all of that and so when we see everything looking good, we know that underneath it's, it's not good. And we said last time that he was received with enthusiasm but not with faith. And now they had a kind of faith. They believed something about him. They may have believed he was even the Messiah, but it wasn't a personal faith, a personal um, submission to him in terms of what he wanted. It was all about their excitement about what they wanted. That's a very different thing. There's, there's a lot of religious feeling, a lot of religious excitement. Um, Going on in this story here, Uh, even little songs were being sung, but we could, what we would call acknowledging the lordship of Christ or receiving Jesus as Lord, that was missing, that wasn't happening. Excitement and genuine faith are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Only a few here believe. Even a few of the leaders believe, but they're very few. And we've seen in the text leading up to this how easy it is to be religious but to have no personal faith in Christ. But to be excited about just sort of what's going on. So the object of faith is what matters. What are you putting faith in? What are you trusting in? It's gotta be Jesus. Faith is a personal trust and submission to his person. And the nature of a true believing heart, it has to be Christ-focused and Christ-centered it has to follow him. So the idea of, uh, of true faith or an awakened heart, a heart awakened to God and receiving Jesus Christ, that's really what our text is about today. Although it might not look that way on the surface, but that really is the heart of it. And it begins with a very curious miracle. Uh, we're gonna pick it up at verse 18. That's where we are. It says, now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry, Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you, and at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Now that's a really unusual story in the Gospels, really unusual. I mean, it didn't just get dropped in here, uh, Matthew is very purposeful in everything that he writes and includes. We've seen that. He's a genius. Uh, uh, he tells a story, and there's a very powerful lesson here. The disciples who have seen many, many miracles, they're amazed. And I mean, this isn't anything like a normal miracle of Jesus. He, it, it doesn't do anything for anyone, which all the other miracles do. Uh, Jesus just doesn't just put on sign shows for a reason, and he never gets testy and causes problems for people. So, um, apparently, this doesn't do anything for anyone. I guess that's the way I should say it. It's a destructive miracle, and all the miracles we know about Jesus are constructive and positive, not destructive. This is the only destructive one. Well, I guess you could... Casting out demons out of a person is positive, but if the demons go run into a bunch of pigs and destroy a guy's herd, I guess you could say that was negative. But that, that, wasn't, that wasn't directly caused by him. He was... Uh, well, actually, it could have been. We don't really know, but... Um, That would be the only thing you consider at all negative. But pigs shouldn't have been in Israel anyway. But anyway, um, (laughs) it's kind of unsettling for people to consider that there may be an appropriate time for destructive behavior. And of course, modern people totally freak out, not because it's destructive, but because it's a tree. (laughs) It's not ecologically sensitive. You destroyed a whole tree. I mean, come on, one tree. You might chop down that tree and use it for kindling. But what's it about? Uh, What's that story about? Was Jesus in a crabby mood that day? Um, Why a miracle that involved cursing a tree? Well, the text actually tells you, and it's because the tree was fruitless. It was full of leaves, a sign that, well, it's actually pretty early for figs, but it's possible because of the condition that it would have had a few early figs on it um, there. Actually, Figs would show up a month or two later, generally speaking. But sometimes there were early ones. But there were none on there. So think about what that means. He's looking at a lush tree, and he's looking under the leaves, and he finds no fruit. Ah. Could that have some relation to everything that's going on? Of course it does. Of course it does. Matthew's not just throwing in a destroy the tree story for fun. Externally... Externally, the tree proclaimed the possibility of fruitfulness, but upon close inspection, it had no fruit, it was, and it was cursed because of that from root to branch. That, so the tree is a li- living and dying, it's a real life metaphor, a real metaphor for everything that's been going on and is going to go on. So, listen, the triumphal entry, the praise that was sung to Jesus, the songs, the joy as he arrived in Jerusalem, that's a lot like the leaves on the tree. It looks lush. It looks great. Encouraging signs, right? I mean, that's all good. But if you look closer, you see that there's no fruit under those leaves of adoration and praise. Jerusalem was full of religious activity. It was one of the major feasts, Passover. There's excitement about Jesus and... The hearts are not there. The hearts are not there. Without faith and humility and soft, teachable hearts, it was no more than shallow enthusiasm. Fit for destruction, that's all it was. So the miracle is symbolic and it's prophetic because this is the condition he finds in Jerusalem and the holy city's destruction was going to come because of his rejection which is just around the corner. So there's an Old Testament verse. um, In fact, there's a couple of Old Testament verses and they're pretty interesting and you know, Jesus knew his Bible really well. So things come to mind. He often refers concepts and ideas from Old Testament texts. but Hosea chapter nine, verse 10, it actually speaks in very similar terms. It says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. There's a very similar idea. I saw the people of Israel as the very first fruit on a fig tree in its first season. There's two seasons of fruit on the tree. But they, the people of Israel, came to Baal Peorah, a horrible false god, and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. So the connection between fruitlessness and idolatry and sin is, is very clear there. So a similar note in the prophet Micah where he excoriates Israel for their sins. But he starts off in Micah chapter 7 verse 1 like this. He says, woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land and there is no upright person among men. So there's nothing new, there's nothing new in this. This is the condition of humanity, religious humanity that doesn't love God or serve Him. So Micah says, I desired to gather grapes and early ripened figs, the first figs on the tree, but there was no fruit. Fruitlessness is linked to godlessness. So although it's not stated, the meaning of the fig tree is really obvious. It doesn't say anything about it. It's just there. But it's so obvious how it's connected to everything. It's not a random event. So Jesus is looking for fruit in Jerusalem, and he doesn't find any. Therefore, the city was doomed. And even on the way to the cross, he talks about the destruction that's coming on Jerusalem, on that very, that very last road to Calvary's hill. So now Mark tells us that some time had passed between Jesus cursing the fig tree and the disciples discovering that it had withered to nothing. And if you've been with us, you know that Matthew often compresses events in time and he makes things sort of all together. But the disciples aren't thinking about the symbolism of what they saw. They're thinking about the miracle itself. They had seen a lot of miracles, but like I said, this one's kind of different, making a tree with a lot of foliage just suddenly dry up. So Mark's gospel says it happened over the course of a day, which is still amazing, but um, they're shocked. So verse 20, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither all at once? So they're way more interested in the how than the what, you know, what actually happened there. It's like, that's just amazing. How did it happen? And So Jesus starts talking about faith. So verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even, as, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, Jesus can do a miracle like this because he absolutely trusts in the authority that God has given him. He knows that tree will obey him. The disciples have also been given substantial authority. We saw that in Matthew chapter 10, verse one where it said Jesus summoned the 12 and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. But we know from earlier stories that it didn't always work for them. I mean, it generally did, but sometimes, you know, like, how come we couldn't cast that demon out, you know? Because uh, they doubt. They don't totally trust in their full authority. They didn't always seem to accept that they had that authority. That's what I'm saying. So if, if they would believe God, nothing would hinder the application of this authority in their ministries. So his power would be theirs by faith. Now this isn't magic and it's not emotionalism and it's not name and claim it theology or something like that. He's just teaching them how to move mountains, which they've never actually moved a mountain. So obviously mountains are metaphorical as well, right? I mean, we don't have any cases of people moving mountains. Although I have a friend from Iraq and he used to tell me that the mountain on the one side of where he grew up in Nineveh moved to the other side, and actually the old city died and they rebuilt it on the other side. But um, that's the story that they tell there. But they actually dug up the old city, and it's on the other side. But anyway, um, so so that doesn't usually happen directly like that, moving a mountain. But he's teaching them how to. Well, let's just take mountain as a symbol of impediments, right, in human life that. Uh, it's a metaphor for tasks that seem beyond possible it's It's something huge I mean that moving a mountain would be like a big deal, so uh, it seems very unlikely that that would ever happen. So when things are are humanly hopeless, faith in God can achieve amazing and impossible things, and these guys have to learn that sometimes it's hard to believe, but sometimes believing is all that's left to us, and we've got to we've got to trust in those situations so these men um, pretty soon, like within a few days, are gonna be without Jesus, they're gonna be, then he's gonna resurrect, and then they're gonna spend time with him, and at the end of that time, he's gonna tell them, now it's time for you to take the gospel into the entire world and convert the nations and make disciples of all nations. Now, you know, if I was just one of 12 Jewish guys that weren't particularly special, except that I did get these gifts and I knew Jesus and all of that, I might think that was impossible to take the gospel through all the world and teach all the nations and do all of that kind of stuff. How can, how can we even begin to do that? And that's where remembering moments like this are gonna come in handy because he's saying you can move a mountain if you believe and if you follow. You take the authority you have. And how are they gonna do that? How are they gonna do that? The Romans are gonna, they're gonna kill us. They're gonna stop us. They're, it's not gonna, how can we do that? But they can do it. And they trusted God and did it. That's how. That's how they did it. When I came to this church 30 years ago, I felt very inadequate to make it grow. And I was willing to try, and I was willing to give it my all, but I, I really didn't have the personality, and I still don't have the personality of a really successful, aggressive church planter kind of a guy. That's just not really who I am. But churches don't need personalities to grow, do they? They don't need certain kinds of people. Sometimes... Sometimes that is the cause of a church growing. You've got a very dynamic personality, but it's actually better if that's not it because who makes it happen if it's not that? If it's some nerdy, nebishy guy and it grows, what, what? Who, who could have accomplished that? God, that's a God thing, right? I mean, from the very beginning. So a year after I was here and we were still struggling along and nothing had changed, Laura and I were offered a chance to go elsewhere, and it was a firm offer. In fact, their entire elder board wanted me desperately to go there to their church, and it was an established ministry. They had a hundred people; it was doing great. And we stayed, and we, we stay. they couldn't believe it, but we stayed because we'd promised the Lord that we would be here longer than the amount of time we were there. We had told God we were going to be here longer than that, so we said, "We can't go." We're sorry. That was an act of faith, feeble as it was, but that's when right after that thing started to kick in around here. And it wasn't just our faith. I mean, before we ever heard of Acton Faith Bible Church, the Crackies and the Smelzers and Mrs. Brink, they, they all believed in the future of this church, and for years they were holding it together. So we believed that too, and, and the great joy was watching God put the people and the tools together to bring us to a place where we were a self-sustaining ministry with such an incredibly wonderful congregation, as you see around you today. So um, That was a long time ago, but you know, if, That was a mountain I really didn't think I could move. But God could move it, he could move it. We just do what we're supposed to do, preach the word, disciple people, love people. So he still does that, the right people at the right time. He still does that here, the right people at the right time. Because we are committed to doing his work his way and he just honors that. So it's always a God thing going on, it's always him moving and doing. I can't move a mountain but he can move a mountain. And I do waver sometimes, you know, in, in that conviction that I have. What are we gonna do without Mel? I mean, that's, that's my first thought, you know? Or without this person or that person who's moved on or um, gone, moved away or something like that. And he always provides. He always abundantly provides. And we need to trust that. All we need to do is honor him. Honor him with our gifts. Honor him with our faith. Faith moves mountains and the greatest mountain to be moved is a sleeping heart a, a dead heart a heart that doesn't belong to him that is just away but the spirit comes and blows life into people's hearts that's the greatest miracle of all and people are suddenly awakened you heard those testimonies at baptism last sunday how god just does that for people it's an astounding reality faith moves mountains faith softens hearts faith changes lives. Faith heals broken people. Faith heals broken relationships. It, it grants joy where once there was great sorrow and despair in people's lives. I never cease to be amazed at the power of a living faith in Christ. It can do so many things. And God just wants us to trust him. And that's why he just doesn't give us everything. Like, oh, you guys are doing great. Here's your building. I mean, 30 years ago we were looking for that building. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta suffer a little you gotta, you gotta want you gotta rely on God on an ongoing basis so he's always he never gives us everything we're always supposed to be relying on him if he gave us everything we wouldn't rely on him at all we'd be off right doing our own thing he's, he's too smart for that if he did that we would think we were great stuff and one thing you don't want to do is think you're great stuff That's that's out, don't think that Yeah, but what if I am? You're not, you're not (laughs) (laughs) And Jesus says here, all things whatever That means there's really limitless possibilities here That means trusting God We have to give him control of our lives, our circumstances And say, I know you've got this I know you're in charge Well then from here, Matthew takes us to a discussion inside the temple So here we see the luxurious leaves come Jesus is teaching, he's right in the middle of teaching, and these guys come all decked out in their official garments, the leaders of Israel, the venerable men, all leaves, all leaves and no fruit, these guys, they look great, they've got all kinds of authority, they're the fruitless trees, and what this encounter reveals is what is behind their opposition to Jesus, It's, it's all about their own power, like so many things are in life, and They never ask him an honest question. Verse 23, when when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching. So they're actually interrupting him. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now remember, these are the big boys coming. Israel's highest authorities. Chief priests, upper echelon people, the old wealthy families, descendants of Aaron. Their families go back 1,400 years. The elders, it says, the leaders of the clans and the tribes, um, hopefully chosen for their wisdom and experience, they're all in town for Passover, so they come as a delegation. By what authority are you doing these things. Well, what things? Well, things like riding into town on a donkey and fulfilling prophecy and letting people chant Hosanna to the Son of David and all of that, that, those kind of things. Accepting people's praise and accolades, letting children sing songs to him about being the Messiah, changing the temple policy, calling the leaders thieves and robbers, forbidding buying and selling anywhere on the grounds. I mean, let's face it, Jesus never did approach Caiaphas and say, would it be okay if just this Passover, we kept the money changers out this year? Would that be all right if we did that? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He just starts turning tables over. Just did it. He acts like it's his authority, like it's his place. His authority is absolute and unquestionable. He acted like it was his temple. So they say, who gave you this authority? We have authority. We're descendants of Aaron. We're the chosen people. We're the leaders of the people. Where did you get your authority? Now, this is a trap question. They're trying to trap him. They want to use Jesus' words against him. And since Jesus was not ordained by any rabbinical council, there's no human authority behind him, they assumed he would say that his authority came from God. And they're planning on him saying that. And he actually, um, if he did that, they would criticize him for bearing witness to himself which they would say was a non-credible source. That actually happened in John chapter 8. I don't know if you remember that chapter in John 8:13 Jesus that's where he proclaims himself, I am the light of the world. And he did it right in the middle of the festival of lights, right? So, I am the light of the world. You just don't say that. But he did. And they say to him, you're bearing witness to yourself. Your witness is not true. And on that occasion, in John chapter eight, Jesus says, essentially, he says, it is true because God knows it's true. It's, it's just true. And God is my witness. That's basically what he says. But here, he's gonna use a different method because there's people listening. Remember, they interrupted him teaching, so there's people standing around. And he wants to make a, a point um, about their authority and how sharp they are, so... He's going to kind of turn it around. So he appeals to an acknowledged witness, John the Baptist. He's the witness. What did John say? He said Jesus was mightier than I, and John was a prophet. He said he existed before I did, even though John was born before he was. And he said Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the people... I don't know if they did any surveys, but I'd say 90-something percent of the people, just based on reactions to John, all the people considered John the Baptist a true prophet, the first prophet in 400 years. So Jesus answers by appealing to the infallible voice of a prophet. And at the same time he's going to appeal to him, he's going to expose the leaders insincerity. So verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So he says, look, let's let's just trade off here. I, I will ask you a question. When you answer my question, I will answer your question. That kind of thing. 25, here's the question. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from man? Good question. So here's an authority question. Who sent... John the Baptist, where did that authority come from? Because you're saying, you know, if if he says he's the authority by God, well, that's exactly where John the Baptist got his authority. There's no other agent. It's just John was a prophet. So was John real or not? Was he a prophet or he was fake? Was he a fake? Because he pointed to Jesus. So they go, um, uh, just excuse us for a moment. And they, they start to huddle. I don't know if they actually physically huddled, but since says, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, because they all regard John as a prophet. So even though they don't believe John was a prophet, because these, these temple guys are pretty secular in their thinking. So... But if they can't say that, if they say that, if they say, well, he's no prophet. John was, a, and all the people there who totally believe John was a prophet, they're not gonna react real well about, about that. So they're not seeking truth. They're not even thinking in terms of truth, are they? They're just thinking PR, um, politics, uh, manipulating people. Um, what are people gonna think about us? That's How do we spin this, this kind of baby? They're, they're jockeying here for position, which is what people do. Verse 26 says they acted out of fear. Um, we fear the people. And Luke's account, it, it actually says they, ex- they were worried about an actual violent response. If we say from men, all the people will stone us to death. That's what they say in Luke's gospel. So they're actually worried about a violent re- reaction if they say that John was a prophet. So in Matthew 12, 27, they've pooled their intellects, they've gathered all their experience and wisdom, and they've come up with a really powerful answer. We don't know. <laughs> Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. Now, I think if your average Jew is standing there and heard their top leaders say they don't know if John the Baptist was a prophet or not, their eyes would get really big. What? You don't know? Now, that might have been the best answer for them as far as staying safe goes, because they're not really saying he wasn't, but they aren't saying he was either. But they're not showing a lot of superior wisdom here so, Jesus had, has revealed them to be, there's a really technical word for this lightweights. <laughs> they're, they're lightweights. They're not uh, substantive men who know what God is doing in the land, even though they're the chief priests and the leaders of the people. They, they don't know. They, they really um, are feigning ignorance, but that's a pathetic answer. It really is. So, they throw their weight around. They challenge Jesus publicly, interrupting his teaching, and they don't know what everybody else knows. They don't know. That John was a prophet. And Jesus says that in verse 27, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because he doesn't owe them anything. They don't merit an answer. But he's not finished. He's going to tell them a story. And it's a story about two different kinds of people. Two boys, two sons. Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work in the, today in the vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't, didn't go. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said, truly I say to you, Tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe in him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward as to believe in him. Wow. That is a well-aimed arrow. Tax collectors and harlots are exalted above the leaders and the chief priests of Israel. Men of great power and wealth and education and influence. On what grounds? Because those lowly, sinful people are deeper spiritually than those men. They're more aware. They recognized what God was doing in their midst. That John was a real prophet sent by God. They lived in sin and they saw what, was God, what God was doing in their midst and they followed him. They went and got baptized. They repented. And these guys who say they're the godly, they don't follow. They didn't follow John. Remember when, John, when they came to John, what did he say? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's your line, right, Walter? Yeah. <laughs> On Easter. Did Jesus owe these men an explanation of where his authority come from? No, you you don't get more light when you disdain the light that you have. So the chief priests and the elders, they know all the right things to say in religion. They know the law. They know um, how to be in positions of great authority. They were very leafy, externally righteous looking. They say the right things to the father. Yes, sir, I will, but they don't obey him just like the first son in the parable. and um, The second son, though, who refused to obey, I'm not going to go to the field today. He felt bad about it. So he went. And the tax collectors and the harlots are like that. They felt bad about it, that they've strayed from God. And they came when God sent John. When life shows people how foolish they are, that's when they make a choice. I'm going to Double up and be tough or I'm going to humble myself and acknowledge. So when they hear about Jesus or remember him, they come back to God through him. Not with words, but with new hearts and, and they're ready to follow. So the harlot stops her trade, the tax collector turns honest, which is an unheard of reality in those days. They love and they serve God. In their recognition of John as a prophet and their acknowledgement of their need for repentance, they were many steps ahead of the religious leaders, the fruitless religious types, who Jesus says did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. And notice he says believe. There's a really intimate connection between believing and following. If you really believe, if your heart believes, you follow. Faith and obedience, they go together. Genuine faith is fruitful. That's the fruit. Obedient, humble, humble before the commands of the Savior, humble before the living God. And by asking them which son obeyed the Father, they, out of their own mouths, agreed that the son who obeyed, even though he refused at first, was doing the Father's will, not the one who promised to do it and then didn't do it. So, you know, advanced degrees in religion does not designate a faith to be followed. It doesn't mean anything one way or the other, necessarily. Clerical clothing or grand titles or high educational positions don't guarantee godliness or spiritual depth or even maturity. The drunkard or the addict down at Bible Tabernacle, that ministry we support for homeless people, an addict down there pleading for God's grace is way closer to heaven than a bishop or a clergyman or some guy all dressed in robes in a, in a great cathedral that doesn't follow Christ, doesn't believe. Much closer, they're much closer. So these men fighting against Jesus in the temple, they're religious professionals. And had Jesus never met them, their unbelief never would have been exposed. But on this day, he's exposing it. I don't know if John is a prophet. And if you go to a lot of uh, universities and seminaries today, you can ask the professors, was John the Baptist a prophet of God, a real prophet of God? Well, I don't know. Some things in life are not really that complicated. And, And these are criteria to apply to professed leaders in religion. Or to anybody else. Do they believe God's messenger? How's that? That's a good test. Do you believe God's messenger? Well, you know, there's a lot of different opinions about whether that, uh, yeah? Well, you don't know, huh? They forfeited the right to be heard when they say that, just like these guys did. So Jesus' words, you know, he has, a, he has a way of separating the false from the true. He's really good at that. And that's why we need to know his words and hang on to them and cling to them. Sophistication and education and craftiness can hide the reality for a while of where people really are. But when Jesus' words tease them out, they're broken on his words because he reveals where people really are. And that's a great question. Was John the Baptist a prophet of God or not? So you could ask somebody, was Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who came to die for the sins of the world or not? What do you believe about that? Well, you know, there's a... If they say say that just that far, well, you know... um, don't listen to them. You don't need to listen to them. Jesus, later in the gospel, he's going to call them blind guides leading the blind. It'd be like having a blind-seeing-eye dog. That's not a, good, not a good plan. Yeah, but they smell really well. Okay, a blind-seeing-eye dog with a bad nose. That's what they're like. Great... Mighty, once mighty historical churches and Christian institutions can become very leafy and fruitless. They can be all leaves. It's happened many times. It still happens. So don't give yourself ever to fruitless trees. Grieve them and move on. Don't be impressed by the leaves. You've got to look for the, oh, that looks great. That tree looks lush. Is there fruit under those leaves? If there's not, it's worthless. So look really closely. It will become very clear. If the fruit is bad, reject the tree. I just read this this week. Union Theological Seminary, which goes way back to the early 1800s. It used to be a mighty seminary in New York City. Now they're a progressive seminary. If you hear that word, be careful. But they're training all these spiritual leaders and. Anyway, this week they put up on Instagram this picture of potted plants and their students gathered around them and this is what it says. Today in chapel we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? That was real. <laughs> I know you think that's a Babylon B article, but it's not. It was a real, it was a real thing. That's a satire thing. They confess their sins to plants. Plants. Now, you know, when the Bible talks about worshiping the creation instead of the creator, usually it's a little more subtle than that. <laughs> but that's literally what they're doing in one of the most prestigious seminaries in New York City. Now, you don't have to have an advanced degree to just look at that and say, that's dumb. <laughs> that's, that's not Christian. There's nothing, it's pagan. That is a pagan thing to do. And even leaves don't look good in this picture, you know? Just, there were no fruit on those little plants, but even the leaves in that particular situation look terrible. And that's an elite school. I think most people, even in our lost world of modernity, our modern world, I think most people would think that was pretty loopy, just strange. But how often? I mean, foolishness is usually more subtle than that. It's more, it uses language that sounds good, love and acceptance, things like that. But usually it's love and acceptance of sin, not love and acceptance of people who need a savior. There's still a lot of blind people leading blind people. There, There always are and there always have been. But in Jesus, there's this incredible hope for sinners, people like me, And as we said, often sinners are much closer to the kingdom because they recognize that what God says about them is true. And when they recognize that, they are way down the road to salvation. They don't have to pretend they're pious. They don't have to pretend they're holy. They know they're not. They know everyone knows they're not. And that's okay. The idea that God loves them and has provided a redeemer for them, that is really good news. And you know what? Your past deeds might disqualify you for heaven. Mine did. But Jesus is all about qualifying people for heaven by his sacrificial death on their behalf. He paid the penalty of sin. He came to do just that, to reconcile you to God. So your problem is sin. He carried your sin to the cross and endured all of God's wrath that was justly aimed at you and aimed it at him, and he endured it and all you got to do is trust him and put yourself under his care as your savior and your king and you're covered he's got you you become his and then you start to have this thing happen to your heart it it awakens and there's new life there and there's fruit that starts to grow in your life real fruit and you will become a source of joy and blessing To other people. That's what happens. You will have new life. So trust in Jesus and obey him. It's God's will for you. It's your best hope. And it's the way to eternal life. That's what the Bible promises. Let's pray. Lord God, let us not be fruitless trees. Doesn't matter how many leaves we have. Expose any pride or unbelief in us. Show us our need and your provision, which is Jesus, the light of the world. In whose name we pray, amen.